Riyad Musa is an international treasure. This is a guy who I've personally watched evolve into one of South Africa's most polished stand-up performers. And in being both a medical doctor and a comedian, he's also one of the most unique in the world. His movie, Material, gained international acclaim. And now Riyad is the focus of his own Netflix special in the first series of Comedians of the World. This is The Healthy Business Show. I'm your host, Fred Road. And in this episode, I'm going to find out how Riyad has built a distinct brand out of his talent and is growing it into a global enterprise. Welcome to the Healthy Business Show, Riyad. Thank you for having me. Such an honor to have you in our midst. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about your formative years and the fact that you are quite extraordinary in the, in the reality that you left a profession as a medical doctor and you, you made this transition to being a comedian and I think it's probably and I'm guessing it's a it's a bit of an overflow of your natural personality and who you are can you talk a little bit about that transition what caused it why did you do it and was it hard I think the word is magic and literally and figuratively because my first sort of foray into entertainment was not as a comedian was as a magician I went to the College of Magic in Lansdowne Road, Claremont in Cape Town uh, during my high school years. Okay. Basically, I remember the day, you know, where it all went horribly wrong. Um, <laughs> my whole life, I wanted to be a doctor. And then in Standard 7, we were sitting in front of the prefabs in South Peninsula High School, my friend Abu Bakr Bray and I, and he whipped out uh, a pamphlet for the College of Magic. You know, I remember that, like, a, I think, you know, the classic cane and, you know, top hat with the dove, white gloves. <laughs> uh, and he said, I want to do this. I want to go to the College of Magic. Uh, and I was like, okay, it seems interesting. I didn't really care that much. But there was something alluring about it. And I ended up going to the College of Magic. And he didn't because his parents said magic was haram. Oh, and context, what, what is that? Mean? Haram just means prohibited within, you know, the Islamic tradition. And I think the magic they're actually referring to is, you know, real. Is more the sinister. The dark arts. That spiritual is, magic. Yeah, that's sure. which is meant to deceive and, you know, inflict negative emotions. As opposed to putting a rabbit yes. up there. Oh. You know, I ended up going to the college. He didn't. So today he's in IT. <laughs> he's <laughs> laughing now. I'm um, actually, I'd really <laughs> like to chat to him about that. You know, um, yeah. I've never really, you know, discussed that with him. And it actually launched me on a different path. It was the first time, you know, I was open to performing. And I really enjoyed it. And, and my magic, interestingly enough, always took a comedic uh, slant. Sure. I initially tried dramatic magic like David Copperfield, the blow dried hair, you know, uh, <laughs> open shirt. You know, I didn't have chest hair back then, so I drew it on. I, I love the guy. And, uh, you know, I remember this one time we were doing a competition and, you know, I was meant to make a orb float across the stage. And, you know, obviously I'm letting the cat out of the bag. Now, yeah, you're not allowed to tell the No, but the essentially secrets. there's a... St- 
there's some sort of string that makes the orb float, okay. you know, and the lighting was perfect. And this was going to be my crowning moment, you know, of glory. They didn't tell me later on that they're going to have a guy doing flash photography <laughs> at the show. Because this is like a, you know, it's at some you know, high school wall, you know, it's not like a major thing. In my mind, it's like the Emmys, you know. <laughs> uh, and, you know, so I'm doing this dramatic stage act. And, you know, this guy's taking a photograph. And <laughs> with each flash, you could see the string. Clearly. I can imagine every kid in the audience pointing. At yeah, it. mommy, it's, yeah, I can see. <laughs> and, uh, you know, people laughed. And very soon after that, you know, I got taken in by comedic magicians. And I never knew about stand-up comedy. It's okay. just I was, I gravitated towards that. The, in terms of my reference of being funny, I was never the funny so child So you saw the inherent comedy within the, the performance. Well, right? I do now. My grandfather was the funny guy. My grandfather was one of those classic joke tellers. And he could captivate the room with the way in which he told jokes. Very, very amazing storyteller. To a certain extent, my uncles have that. My father's not that. I'm almost a mixture. I, I think I have my father's nature. So I'm more like him, you know, in real life. Yet I love jokes like my grandfather. Okay. So how... How, how did I find comedy? Yeah, how did the transition happen? And, so, and when did it, so, it take traction? Because I'm guessing at the same time you were studying to be a, a this doctor. This is just the start of the story, yeah. And when did the transition take place? When you knew... I loved magic. So already at that point, while I was doing magic, I thought, I'm not sure if I want to be a doctor. That was the first time. And I think towards matric, I had doubts about whether I wanted to become a doctor. My mother was open to the idea that I could, you know, do something in arts. But, you know, I only applied for medicine and I got into medicine. So I did medicine and I enjoyed it. I did magic on the side. And after fourth year medicine, I made the decision that I actually wanted to take a year off. So that was the thing. I just underneath knew that, you know, something didn't feel completely right. And I wanted to explore that. So I spoke to my parents about taking a year off. But because, you know, I'm, you know, my father's son, if I'm going to take a year off, I have to study something else. So on my off year, I went to upper campus and I studied economics, also, and Afrikaans. Okay. Because we thought that would also be helpful, you know, economics generally is good to have an understanding of the world. And, you know, language is good in medicine. And it was during that year that I actually found stand-up comedy. Towards the end of the year, I went to a stand-up comedy show at Upper Campus at UCT. And it was the first time, you know, I was exposed to the art form of stand-up comedy. And I was just totally taken in by it. Uh, At that point, I was doing magic, but comedy magic. And I started performing with the Cape Comedy Collective. It was a group uh, that was um, put together by the Samsons, Mark Samson, Sam Pierce. Okay. And a lot of us started there and performed at the Armchair Theatre, which is yes, still our, an observatory, yeah, right. our home theatre. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. And interestingly enough, my grandmother had stayed on the top floor of the Armchair Theatre oh, many years ago. Huh. You know, uh, that is very interesting. So there you started to find your feet. But I was doing comedy magic. Okay. So there was a certain niche that you were trying to establish. 
I was just drawn to this okay. And I, I didn't know I was drawn to the comedy specifically So were you more funny or better at doing the magic? <laughs> no, well it was comedy magic So I mean like it was funny magic And, okay. and it was good But I mean I loved the comedy okay. So very soon I got rid of the magic And did my first set okay. In stand up And, and did just, you kill it? I, it felt right that's where I started doing stand-up comedy. And it launched you into what has been a phenomenal career in comedy. But in the South African context particularly, comedy is seen as, as a really tough profession to pursue. Is that still the case, or do you think that the perception is changing? It's very interesting because that time we didn't do stand-up comedy for the potential of a career. I still went back to do complete my medical degree And when I came to Johannesburg for my internship That's where I got exposed to the professional uh, okay. life of a comedian Because what I would do is I would work in the day as a doctor And in the evenings I would drive to whatever comedy club there was Hurricanes, which are the Joe Parker gigs that we were doing And um, Cool Runnings in Marvel Okay and I used to do stand-up and then drive back to to uh, Alberton. <laughs> late. I woke up driving so many times. <laughs> you know, I was very tired because I would have to be. That's you know, a hell of a drive. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, and there's and clearly a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of drive within you to, to do that. I mean, it must have been quite a burning desire to want to extend yourself in that I way. I didn't even think about it. Hey? I just, you know, I wanted to do this thing and... Uh, I was focused in the moment. I never had a broader vision as I do now, but then it was purely based on engaging with this art form that totally consumed me. I loved writing a joke and performing it for the first time okay. because the first time you don't know if it's going to work and when it elicits laughter, it's usually rewarding. The second time, I've made them laugh, sure. laugh for this already, but the first time is great and I've always thought that you know, even if I didn't do this for a living, I would still want to write a joke and perform it. You yeah. know, This is something that is hugely enjoyable for me and it also helps me i'm a generally more melancholic person and i think looking at life in a playful way in a comedic way actually is very therapeutic for me sure so that's me psychoanalyzing that myself that seems to be quite a, a prevalent th thread amongst not just comedians and performers but creatives in general mm -hmm. is it feels like there's such a juxtaposition of these conflicting emotions on mm -hmm. the one side this drive to really entertain people and finding great gratification and joy in doing so mm. and it's this ultimate form of creativity and mm. then on the other side introspective reflective nature mm. which it's not just comedians and performance but it's across artisans and yeah. designers and artists and i suppose this whole sub category of entrepreneurs yeah. and people who are making money out of their own abilities yes. right why do you think that is? I mean, what is that? Can you talk into a little bit of that? that I think it's got to do with right brain people are chaotic. Um, and the chaos is where the creativity comes from. Like, well, in my experience, left brain people, okay, I'll just do this and that and the other and structuring what they do and everything's <laughs> fine. They're actually happier in life. Coming from like medicine, which is a very little creativity in the sense because there are protocols in it. Not that there isn't creativity in medical innovations, but generally it's step by step fundamental 
in terms of how they teach it and you follow protocols and this is what you do and if you get this and you'll be able to make this amount of money and if you progress you're able to do that and that's like it's very structured sure whereas the creative arts it's like i mean one minute you can be top of the world and the next minute you can be nothing you what mean from an internal perspective or from an external perspective because you the product that you're offering Sometimes can be the same. Sure. So you got to keep being creative, keep innovating, keep yes, that's creating hard. new material. And if you don't, then you die. You're not relevant anymore. You're not relevant anymore. Whereas a lot of times, people in other professions they just accumulate knowledge along the way, and they don't necessarily have to evolve as quickly mm. or adjust. Mm. And it has to come from somewhere, that creativity, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a deep well that you have to draw from yes. in order to keep creating. Yeah. And, you know, it may seem strange that we've asked you onto the Healthy Business Show, yeah. but it's very intentional because you represent, I suppose, that whole category of creatives, which are so fundamental to our economy. And, I mean, I think… You could say that it's the one side you'd have the, you know, the doctors and the lawyers and the engineers who are, they've got a very clear trajectory that they're on. They get onto the rails and they go, right? But the other category, the artisans, the designers, the clothing and fashion folks and so on and so forth, there's a creativity that they have to draw from and keep drawing from, right? Mm. Although that being said, the trajectory of the classic professions uh, were very stable. But in the state where there's disruption, Mm. accessing creativity is going to be seen as much more important, especially when the binary things are going to be performed by AI and all of the robots and the machines. Even the act of doctors diagnosing things, robots or artificial intelligence are going to be able to do that much better than us very soon because they have the full body of knowledge sure. right? in terms of diagnosis. That being said, Having a good bedside manner and offering reassurance <laughs> is always going to be those emotional skills is always going to be important, right? Very powerful and creative surgery is still going to be very, very important from a surgical perspective. Within the fourth industrial revolution, it feels like all these professions are being disrupted, right? Yes. So you have to start, even if you're a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer, you, you really do have to practice that ability to be creative mm. right so there's almost a convergence of all these different areas in one sense yes that, uh, and, and it's all necessary but um it can be disconcerting because like i don't know what i'm going to do specifically with my kids what tools do i give them so they can be successful in this sure. world like when my father is like okay just become a doctor and he'll do anything you to become a doctor he was born in india yeah, i have an idea once i become a doctor i'll be fine even with me, get a degree where you can get a good income or start a business generally was very stable. Now that's not the case. And you've made this transition, I guess, from being a doctor and a fairly stable career path to what many would see as something that's hugely challenging. And Mm -hmm. you've essentially taken the service oriented sector, which now you yourself are the product, you yourself are the offering, right? That's got to be challenging. Mm. It is challenging. And um, I feel 
blessed in the fact that I'm doing something that's authentic, but at the same time, I always wanted to be a doctor. So I want to incorporate that as well into what I do. It's impractical for me to do clinical medicine, but I can still use my platform, you know, to communicate health advice. Mm. So that's sort of the next veneer, the next level of, you know, what I'd like to embark upon. Not just doing my stand-up and being creative in that way, but maybe communicate uh, health or wellness ideas in a funny or creative way. And I think that would be a sustainable thing. I'm uniquely able to offer that. I'm a bit of a category of one in that sense. And I'd like to do that and sort of create something that is unique. And so that's what makes it interesting for me. So that would be, I I guess, a really valuable lesson, right? Mm -hmm. To all these young artisans, creatives, and uh, performers, actors, directors, anyone in the creative industry who are trying to make a business out of themselves or for themselves to create something unique. Mm. And potentially there's an opportunity to marry two seemingly opposing professions or sectors and creating, a, as you say, a category of one. And I didn't plan to do that. It's just I love the medicine. I appreciated what it was. You know, um, I always wanted to be a doctor. And then there was this other side to me, which I was able to express. And, you know, opportunities opened up in that regard. And I followed the path of least resistance. I was never doing anything dramatic. Like, I never had this conversation with my mother or my father. Mom, Dad, I just want to be funny, you know? (laughs) I don't want to be a doctor, you know? And then just, like... You know, you know, go sleep in my car and wait tables. For How a was year. it dad, about the whole thing? It wasn't much of an issue because I was still doing all the things I needed to do. Okay. So this was so just... you were still because I, I'm the obvious question. I'm sure a lot of people who have seen the movie material, yes. which by the way is a friggin' awesome movie. Thank I loved you. it. Absolutely amazing, and Thank everybody. You. Who is South African and otherwise should watch that movie. Thank you. Because it, I think it transcends so many boundaries and borders and, and it just speaks to universal themes. But is your family like that? No, and that's the, that's why I, <laughs> I have think everybody a lot of probably gratitude that about that. Okay. I have a lot of like that the fact that, you know, my parents let me do things that's not characteristic of my cultural background. Because your father in the movie was, yeah. was quite harsh and yes. critical and very yes. domineering yes. and wanted you to yes. follow in the same career yes. path. Yes. So your father in real life is not like that? No, as long as I... He was just one of those fathers who were very clever, worked very hard, and implicitly expected you you to do well, although it was never overtly critical okay. of marks but you would say I get 9 out of 10 okay where's the other mark you know <laughs> you got 9% where's the other 10% that's a classic you know like every like father in, ever yeah. yeah yeah and through his example super hard worker still continues to be I mean, he's in his 60s and he puts me to shame in terms of how hard he works through his example I learned a lot you know all the things in material although it wasn't directly conflictual with my family directly Everything is based on true experience of mine, which mm-hmm. is dramatized, whether it's not directly from my own family, maybe from relatives, whether from the community, whether it's from, you know, expectations. Everything was dramatized. And the conflict of doing stand-up comedy and still being Muslim 
was dramatized a, in material. Yeah. A simple thing of going into a comedy club where they're drinking a lot and performing sure. in this type of environment. Sometimes you do a show which is sponsored by sort of an alcohol brand, mm. which I... When I started out doing comedy, I happened to be on, on one of these shows. My grandfather was the joke teller. Yes. He pulled me aside and he said, this can't happen, you know. And he's my comedic inspiration. <laughs> and he's telling me this can't happen. So it's just the sensitivity yeah. of performing comedy in the most halal way that I can, most permissible way that I can. And it's created a genre of stand-up comedy within South Africa. So there's a lot more Muslim comics. And there's a market now for the type of stand-up comedy that I do, sure. which didn't exist before. So you kind of opened the way for not just Muslim comics, but I think a lot of different cultures and different voices that in our society we need to hear, right? And I think that's hugely important. And I guess you've created a brand that hasn't been an intentional thing of, you know, I'm going to take these elements, put them together, and then, hey, let's see what happens. It's more like I'm going to be myself, tell the story as authentically as possible, and then I suppose amplify the areas that work. Initially, it was instinctual. And then it had became formulated because I'm okay. an analytical person. Sure. But the foundation of it is authenticity. And my aim artistically is to find my unique voice. I'm not there yet. I don't feel I'm yeah, there sure. yet, but I feel I'm, I'm closer than I've ever been. And, you know, if I can then find my, what my unique voice is and brand it in a way that's consistent with that. For sure. And that's why I'm also focusing on the wellness in terms of, you know, the tone that I want my comedy to have. Well, it's really difficult for anyone else to do that, right? So it's somewhere that you stand apart and you've created this niche within the landscape mm. that is truly unique to you. Mm. And I understand what you're saying. I mean, I guess you're not there yet, but mm. you have achieved quite a considerable amount of success with the various milestones along the way. And now with this Netflix special, uh, how has that impacted you? And also, again, your personal brand and and so on. So Netflix is one of the things, you know, I always try and do things that force me to grow as an artist. Now, for example, a few years ago, I had the opportunity to do some writing work for Trevor Noah. And I obviously jumped at the opportunity. But moving to New York with three kids on the time, with the fourth on the way, was no easy task. Of course. But I tried very hard to make it work. So in a sense, we went there, I investigated the terrain, looked at... And this schooling. is for the Today Show, right? Well, so the, the Daily Show. The, the Daily Show, sorry. It's for the Daily That's Show. That's right, yeah. Uh, well, just to do some writing. It wasn't yeah. like a major job, but I mean, being a writer and, you know, I've got a good relationship with Trevor. But of course, that would open up a whole huge amount of opportunities within New York, which has a very vibrant comedic yes. scene and all that. And also at that point, he also felt vulnerable in terms of whether he would stick but then I couldn't make my family dynamic work uh, like where we were going to stay you know what type of support would there be because I would also want to do stand-up so we'd work I was conceptualizing I'd work at the daily show the whole day oh, and then I want to do stand-up at night again so your time would just be conflicting right and then you know my family is can't be staying in New York it's so dirty there you know and everything is tiny Right, like mm -hmm. the the coffee's too big and the, and the house is too small. <laughs> right, like a yeah. big 
cup of coffee in a small house is confusing. You yeah. know, it's like, why is that room got a straw out of it? <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? So, so they would have to probably stay in um, the suburbs, but then you'll have to, you know, commute, commute and they'll have and to start like a whole thing. Sure. And I'm not around. So that didn't work. I still, I still want to somehow do stand up in New York, but I couldn't make this thing work because I decided that the family stability is the priority. And although this is a wonderful opportunity, I couldn't make it work at that time. So the Netflix thing was another thing. They only just wasted on us a couple of months before the time. That's great. You want to do this. And it was hilarious. Yeah, it well, was so good. <laughs> Thank you. Like, but I mean, I still think I was lucky because we had no prep time. Essentially, you know, I was so busy with other things there. Decided to go to Montreal for a week. We had four shows to prep, I think, and I hardly performed overseas before. Sure. Every time I performed, people wouldn't connect with me because they always thought my accent was weird. <laughs> um, and they couldn't contextualize me because, you know, uh, like, he has this guy from Africa, but he says he's of Indian descent, looks Arab. Uh, he's got this, he used to be a doctor. He's got this weird accent. Yeah. That's his first language. Yeah. Like, I'm mean, English is your but first you language. But you right? Yes, yes she now, made it into the thing. Yes, now that's what I did. So because I spoke about my accent first up, I tried to, you know, address the things that people would question first. They connected with me, gotcha. and then I could go wherever I wanted uh, to. So with you it. laid the platform, and then you yes, built but upon in it. a sense, I only figured that out while I was there. We had three seven-minute sets and one twenty-minute set, and then now you're gonna record a Netflix special that's gonna go out for all time, <laughs> you know, available globally. Mm. You know, and it just kind of exploded. And so, from there. so it's sort of uh, uh, my mindset there. I had to. I was just gonna do it. My first set didn't go well. Uh, my second set went a little bit better, and I was just trying different material okay. because I didn't have time to do the whole thing. The third set uh, went reasonably well. The 20-minute set was when I felt a little bit in control, but I'd never performed my whole show. I didn't know what I was going to do. Most times people prep, you know, for a year or getting the show perfect before they do something like this. You had to and I just, it to I, 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 No, I had a guideline, but I mean, I didn't have the security of knowing this thing is going to kill. And also I had a sequestered slip disc. <laughs> I was on medication. That's why I was sitting. <laughs> Maybe your delivery is enhanced by the medication. I hope so. You know, like, but just that worked well. And, and also I think... The skills that I'd garnered over all those years. Sure. You know, and I had the opportunity. But they say, as you say, your preparation over many, many, yes. many years of, of doing the stand up, where they say luck is when fortune meets preparation, yes. right? So, but you're talking about such universal challenges, I think, to the creative entrepreneurs amongst our listenership and our, our community. And, um, you know, this, this so-called fabled work-life balance, uh, you know, you spoke about your, yeah. your four kids and trying to make that work. You've spoken mm. about time and, you know, make that work and the challenges of you being the product and making that work, yes. you know, because there's a finite amount of hours in the day that there's available to you. Yeah. How have you... How do I scale myself? Yeah, you, well, there's a bunch <laughs> of questions there. How do you scale yourself? How do you, how do you tackle those challenges? How do you divide your time? Okay. How do you prioritize? So my first philosophically, my approach is that of patience. Okay. Be patient. Try to do quality work. 
it's thematically that's like my truth, you know, in terms of my life experience. Even when I had the opportunity to progress with the comedy, I still had two more years of medicine to do. Because opportunities were there already. TV shows were there already. Wait. Strengthen yourself first. Sure. So you had a long view on it. Initially, it was instinctual. But now I like I, I try and utilize that. I'm going to do things slowly, even though people will say you don't always get the opportunities. I only force the opportunity when I know I'm going to be better at the end of it. So, so that's how you make the decisions, right? Yes. That's how you prioritize. When yes. you evaluate the opportunity, you, you try and assess whether or not you're going to be better at My you job. Know, on that, that trajectory yeah. down the line. Which is, why, which is why I still chose to do the Netflix thing. I could have said no because what if I mess up, sure. then it's out. But even if I messed up there, I would be a better comedian. Yes. The learning that I would have done would have been huge and I would have been a better artist. And at the back of my mind, I knew I could do it. So it wasn't Which, like I was taking the leap without a sense that I could deliver. But I also had to know that if it didn't work out, would it still be beneficial? Yes, that would still be beneficial. Which leads to a lot of the challenge that a lot of creative entrepreneurs and performers and presenters, designers and so on, face is how do you turn down the money? Yeah. It's, it's hard. It's very difficult. I've got, you know, a wife and four kids. Yeah. And if they're not generally content and happy and I don't spend as much time with them as I can, then, you know, it's going to be negative for me in the longer run. So it's just an approach that I've had, you know, because some people, they swing big and then they, you know, get a lot yeah. out of it and then they can relax and have time with their family. Mm. It's just not how I'm built. Sure. And I have a principle that, you know, if I offer quality work, people will notice, you know, and if they don't, you know, I have a body of work that I'm proud of and I'm happy to put out there. Things can't be perfect, but uh, I try and focus on that. I haven't got it right, but I want to have sort of a long-term view of how I can do this and not be subject to, you know, jumping at every opportunity, creating more control. And I think it's fortunate that we live in a time where, you know, we have more control of marketing because yeah. of social media. Sure. I have a lot more direct access to the people who appreciate me. And that wasn't the case before. So you can take more control and create your own products. Uh, creating products is much cheaper than before. And hopefully it'll get even cheaper. Cheaper and scalable, right? So it's now, digital now. The, the, the scalability of it with a stand-up probably creating products that you can sell there's some great examples right like internationally conan o'brien has got his whole team coco thing going mm. and they've they've used his time and scaled it you talk a lot about beliefs and values and you know the framework i, th I think personally i believe very strongly in that the the framework of having your family and your friends and the support structures around you, it'd be very difficult for you to do what you do authentically with confidence and effectively if you didn't have those, um, uh, those, those people around you and yeah. the support of that framework, right? Yeah. How important is it for you to marry what you do and uh, the personal brand that you create with that framework, those values, those beliefs? So from a religious perspective, first of all, sure. the type of work that I do 
some people who are more conservative in their thinking would think that what I'm doing is incorrect, although a lot of people would see how I'm trying to, you know, incorporate my religious and spiritual viewpoint into how I express my stand-up comedy. I try and do that. That has to be consistent with my belief, so that's very important. And then in terms of the family life, all my kids have very different interests. It provides you with such content and things that are creative. I'm very involved in the whole dropping of the kids and doing a lot of things with the kids. <laughs> You're involved. Not that I want to monetize my kids. <laughs> Can we talk a, a little bit about social media? Because yeah. obviously yeah. it's a hugely important part about being a creative entrepreneur or mm -hmm. any kind of performer mm -hmm. or where you yourself are selling your time. You're the fruit of your own efforts. How do you use social media? How in touch are you with your own audience? And how do you protect yourself, I guess, from the whole diaspora of signals that come at you from all yes. different sources? Yes. Some of them are... I imagine fairly negative. Obviously, a lot of very positive stuff. And, and you I'm know. lucky that it's not so negative yet. Okay. I've had my issues with controversy in the past, but at that point, social media wasn't really that big. Sure. The social media do you do your crazy. own social media? Do you, do you I own? do my own social media. Awesome. And that's part of the challenge, you know, because you find yourself constantly on the platforms. Sure. So you and Donald I'm Trump. <laughs> spending a lot. <laughs> totally fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'd love, I have to find a way to engage with the platform in a hygienic way. In a way that is hygienic? good for you. Like okay. you say sleep hygiene. There's a way in which you make sure that certain things you do to optimize how you sleep. You know, at a certain time, turn off devices. Okay. Now, the same way, how do you engage with social media in a good way? There has to be discipline involved. This is a th something that I'm grappling with a lot now. I know it's got to do with me turning off the platforms at certain times. Is there discipline to your social media? Do you do it at a certain time of the day? Do you have a structure around it? Or is it more I'm authentic? trying to work that out. Okay. That's the challenge. But your, I suppose your intention is to create that structure. I mean, you've got yes. a really, really rapidly yes. growing social yes. following, right? Yes. So I suppose that's top of mind for you, yes. right? Yes, definitely. And it's so beneficial because I have direct access to my fans and I can, you know, like if I market my live events, I mean, through the platforms, it's just, you know, making it so much easier. There's a huge link between the growing prevalence of social media to, I suppose, social anxiety, burnout. Yep. A lot mm -hmm. of people are struggling with mental challenges, afflictions like, you know, depression and so yep. on. I suppose as a result of yes. social media. Exactly. What advice do you have for people who are struggling with that in so, terms of the audience? And particularly, I think, the burnout that is attached to creatives who are just always on, always pushing and trying to build their businesses. So if you want to be in a public space, realize that fame is fake, it can disappear. The work that you do is real. It's a tangible offering. So focus on your work that you do. That's a strong foundation. You mentioned you communicate with Trevor and, you know, you've exchanged some ideas and tips and so on and so forth in the past, I know. Yes. I mean, he's an amazing example yeah. of a South African success story who has created a personal brand and he's now recognizable across the globe. How important is it to have 
mentors and role models within this category, you know, and I'm talking about creative entrepreneurship as a whole, but I mean, let's speak about within the performance realm. I think it's very important. And I think comedians are communicating with each other about these things more now. I expect it to become more evident because we love having these discussions and comedians are strange people <laughs> and they they so serious sometimes and so so they're not a happy bunch basically a lot of them aren't but i mean it, it depends some of them are extroverted some of them are introverted but we all a bit off off center yeah there's something <laughs> yeah. wrong with you if you're a comedian like that's the reality of, sure. of that you can't be too well, perfect and be a comedian there must be something off with you so you've got to have that support structure i guess and that's outside of your family and it's got to be people well a lot of humor no this is what i haven't figured out yet and i'd really love to explore this because having a comedy mind can be hugely detrimental to you in the real life you have this, you know, art form, you know, that can create something on stage and off stage is just like nobody wants to be part uh, around you. Why? Because the things people say on stage, some comedians say those things off stage because they are like weird off stage. <laughs> yeah. On stage, so on stage, on, persona on stage a, a person being an a-hole, right? <laughs> Is funny sometimes, and when you have that exact same persona off stage, mm. people think it's ridiculous. I think it resonates with me because I used to run a team of creatives, and I noticed with the creative team that often there was a lot of challenges with, I suppose, with anxiety. And the leaders of creative agencies, a lot of them I know, suffer from burnout and creative businesses there's a lot of that sort of challenge and i suppose again it speaks to this thing of a framework and having the right people around and that balance not always hustling actually trying to find time of being disciplined and as you mentioned yes. just being able to structure and prioritize that which is important to your career furthering your career creatives need to have rituals that contain them but also the, the rituals must allow the expression of the creativity. Mm. But if they don't have the rituals, you know, it can get out of control. I would like to just ask you for one or two leave behind tips and, and lessons, salient lessons that you've picked up along the way that our audience would find beneficial. Particularly, I think the creative entrepreneurs and the, you know, the, the guys who are more involved and invested in within their own personal brands and, uh, and what they're doing. Maybe using the, the comedy analogy of why I appreciate comedy is because it allows for creativity and almost has an inbuilt leveler. Performing stand-up comedy challenges the ego constantly. That's why I like it. It's because you get the opportunity to be creative, but in order to be funny, you can't be up there. And you've got to be able to relate. For me, the process of doing comedy, the idea of failure is built into it. Open failure, on view for everybody to see. You go up there, and you put yourself out there, and if there's no laugh... You failed. <laughs> and that's incredibly scary. Yes, but you understand through the process of doing that, failing, you get that success and that laugh. Sure. You so know? learning from those failures. 
so you're getting this immediate feedback loop and instead of being yeah. scared of it to embrace it yeah. and to use that failure yeah. to teach you how to be better yeah and the aim is as a stand-up comedian to be able to be comfortable also in that silence in that failure the older you get, the more, you know, composed you get and more you understand that process. So I guess a, a, a sub lesson to that would be just keep going. Just keep doing it again and again. When you're a young, creative performer, designer. It's best just to keep, do it when you're young. Keep don't, practicing. Don't and, get in your comfort zone. Put yourself out of your comfort zone a lot more when you're younger. Do it. Like one of the issues that I had was, you know, I was good at comedy early on. So that meant that I want to people to laugh. I want to take less risks. I'm just going to make sure I'm going to give them a good time. <laughs> but then what happens is I don't grow as much and as quickly as I could have if I took more risks. Sure. I wasn't able to find my unique comedy voice as early as I could have because I didn't take those risks. That's what the one thing I tell young comedians all the time. You know, risk now. I mean, this is mm. a small place. I mm. know this is like everything to you, mm. this comedy club. But this is where you learn the art. That's amazing advice. Thank you, Riyad. And thank you for your time and, and your energy invested into putting into this show and providing the wealth of your experience. And congratulations on all the, the success. I know you feel that you haven't got there yet in terms of where you want to be. But long may this trajectory continue. Thank Thank you, man. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Healthy Business Show. If you love this podcast, do let us know via social media. Tag at discovery underscore essay. Use the hashtag DSY healthy business and please do rate us on your favorite podcast platform. Whether it's Apple, Spotify or wherever you find your shows. You can also find more episodes on the Discovery website at discovery.co.za forward slash corporate forward slash podcasts.